Before we jump into today's podcast episode, I want to tell you about two incredible brands we love supporting. The first is Tubes & Co. Organics. Tubes & Co. is a family-owned company creating the best skincare and makeup I have ever used. My personal favorites are their frankincense tallow balm, organic body oil, organic mascara, and their liquid foundation. Honestly, they have so many amazing products. I have loved everything I've tried so far. For Christmas, we even purchased their tinted lip balms and lipsticks for our 12-year-old who is into all things skincare and makeup, and it just feels so good to have found a brand that is truly clean. Tubes & Co. doesn't use any fillers, and the best part is their products are made with traditional fats like tallow from grass-fed cows and organic cold-pressed olive oil. You will not find any synthetics, just certified organic essential oils and vitamin-rich herbs. At Tubes & Co., they believe organic skincare products shouldn't just mean non-toxic, they should be pro-nourishment. Be sure to check them out at tubesandco.com and use the code HOMEGROWN for 10% off your order. And the second brand I want to tell you about is one we've actually had on the podcast before, and that's Kelowna Supernatural. You guys know high-quality, minimally processed dairy is a staple in our home. Kelowna Supernatural is a beyond-organic dairy company sourcing milk from regenerative small family farms. We're excited to announce that they are now land-to-market verified regenerative by the Savory Institute, which means they've got data proving they are restoring soil, plant, water, and air quality. Kelowna Supernatural features low-temp pasteurized, non-homogenized cream-top milk and dairy products, pasteurized at the lowest temperature allowed by law. That includes fermented dairy products as well, like 100% grass-fed organic kefir and yogurt. They've also got chocolate milk, buttermilk, whipping cream, cottage cheese, sour cream, and butter. I recently purchased their butter and immediately fell in love. Kelowna Supernatural is available at natural food stores and independent co-ops nationwide, including Sprouts, Whole Foods, Natural Grocers, and Hy-Vee Health Markets. Find more at KelownaSupernatural.com. Welcome to the Homegrown Podcast, the place where we share the truth about food and farming from our kitchen to yours. I'm your host, Liz Hazelmeyer, along with my husband, Joey. Good afternoon. And together we hope to inspire, educate, and equip you in your pursuit of true nourishment. Today we're talking to Mr. Will Harris. Will is a fourth generation cattleman who tends the same land that his great-grandfather settled in 1866. Today that land is known as White Oak Pastures. Will, I was also reading your bio and there was one online, I think, where I saw this. And it said you like coffee, but it also mentioned you may drink a glass or bottle of wine at night. And I was curious, you know, what kind of wine you getting into? What kind of coffee you getting into? <clears throat> well, uh, first of all, thank you for having me on your show. I appreciate the opportunity oh, to talk to you. Absolutely. <clears throat> Second, uh, yeah, the, uh, the, uh, the, the coffee and the wine, I'm pretty serious about. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, th- 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 and thank God I don't have, uh, uh, an affinity for fine wine because as much as I drink, I couldn't afford me. So you know, I, I tell them if if uh, if God made any wine better than uh, Yellowtail Shiraz, he kept it, he kept it for himself. Uh, so, you know, I, uh, I, <clears throat> an eight dollar bottle and an eighty dollar bottle, I can't tell much difference. Thank God. So, would you ever consider growing it if you love it so much? Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, the two things that I enjoy most in life, well, coffee is kind of off the, off the uh, we don't have the right ecosystem for coffee, right. but the uh, cheese and wine are two of my uh, uh, cherished uh, foodstuffs, and, uh, and I, don't, I don't do dairy or wine, sadly, and I'm, I'm, dairy is on the table. We may do dairy at some point. 
wine is very difficult here. We're in the coastal plains of Georgia, 52 inches of rain, 100% humidity, many days. So the only grapes that really do well here are the very thick-skinned, muscadine, very sweet uh, grapes, and they, that's not good. That, that, you know, I, I kind of draw the line there. That's, uh, that's, uh, not I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't like sweet. I don't like a sweet wine. Right on. Wow, I already connect with you so much because cheese, wine, and coffee are like our staples yeah. in our home. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, so for those who might not be as familiar with White Oak Pastures, give us a general rundown of what your operation looks like today. And I also am really interested in talking about the history of White Oak because I know you guys haven't always been uh, in a regenerative <clears throat> model. So let's let's break down what all that transition looked like. Good. So uh, today, White Oak Pastures, our family farm in Bluffton, Georgia. Bluffton is again in the coastal plains of Georgia, southwest Georgia. <clears throat> we are uh, 3,200 acres here in this farm, and we pasture raise five red meat species cows, hogs, sheep, goats, rabbits. And we hand butcher them here on the farm in a USDA inspected packing plant that I built. We pasture raise five poultry species, chickens, turkeys, geese, guineas, and ducks. And we hand butcher them in a separate USDA inspected facility that I built. <clears throat> we uh, raise uh, servile organic vegetables, pastured eggs, honey, and a number of other very small ancillary kinds of businesses that, that come from the bounty that, of managing this land properly. So, uh, from what I understand about some of your history, you weren't always focused on regenerative agriculture. In fact, you spent quite a bit of your career conventionally farming, right? So, talk to us about that. Yeah, you did ask that question. I, I didn't answer that part. <clears throat> so, my great-grandfather came to this farm in 1866, and and managed and ran it. And then his son, my grandfather, Will Carter Harris, ran the farm. And then my dad, Will Bell Harris. And then me, I'm the fourth generation. And I have two daughters and their spouses here helping me now, who are the fifth. And those two couples have five children who are the sixth generation being raised on the farm. Wow. And the thing I enjoy most about the story of the farm is how in that 150-something years and six generations, the farm came full circle. Mm. You know, the way my great-grandfather and grandfather would have run the farm in the late 1800s, early 1900s, would have been very focused on the land and the animals and the community. You know, the, the land was their wealth. The animals were their checking account. It was the, 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 what they monetized. And the local community was their market. And my father took over the farm post-World War II. And his generation uh, industrialized, centralized, commoditized the farm and food, as, as food production went in that era. We can talk a lot about those three things, and I suspect we probably will, but he's the generation that made those sweeping changes. I was born in 1954. Uh, I went to the University of Georgia, majored in animal science, 
and I came home and ran the farm even more industrially than my dad had for the next 20 years and and was financially successful in, in doing it that way, as was my father. He was, he was prosperous for his time and place. <clears throat> but in the mid-90s, I became increasingly dissatisfied with that production model and started to move it away from that. Not really moving it towards anything, just moving it away from what I didn't like. Mm -hmm. And 25 years later, we're still moving away from stuff I don't like. We're uh, continuing to change, morph, and I think improve uh, the way we do things. So give us an example of one of the things you were discontent with in your conventional years. So the, the first, the first, uh, the first uh, part of the operation that I became uh, unhappy with was probably the animal welfare. Mm. You know the things that that I had always thought was cr- good, great animal welfare. I realized were, were not were not not that great. You know, I uh, in the world I was raised in, and really in the the way the industrial animal. Uh, biz, animal production business is today, the consideration was if you keep the animals well-fed, well-watered, in a comfortable temperature range, and you don't intentionally you know, inflict pain and suffering, that's good. That's good. That's fine. You, you check the boxes and you're fine. But in reality, that's not fine. Uh, it's also incumbent upon the stockman to uh, create the opportunity for the animal to express instinctive behavior. And that does not happen in a confinement feeding operation. Mm-hmm. You know, I say that the cows were meant to roam and graze. Hogs were meant to root and wallow. Chickens were meant to scratch and pick. And in a commercial monocultural uh, animal farm, those instinctive behaviors are, cannot express themselves, mm-hmm. and I think that creates, a, I think that creates a twenty-four-seven stress on the animal. It's a, if you if you have children and you decided you wanted to really take good care of them, so you you put them in the closet and you kept you left the light on, you kept the temperature at 72 degrees, there was a, a, a mattress in there, you kept them well fed. That's 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 good parenting because they won't ever get their leg broke on the football field. They won't ever be thrown off the horse. They won't ever be abducted by a white van. I mean, it's just great parenting except it's not because those children should express instinctive behavior. Yeah. So that's the that's the uh human side of, of of the example I was making. I always talk to, so in my line of work, we're in a city and there, there tends to be a, a lot of people that work with me or for me that, that go, that are, that are choosing different ways to eat a number of which are vegan. And oftentimes the reason they would choose to be a vegan is because they don't like the way animals are treated or they believe there's like a carbon footprint that, that, that uh, these sorts of practices are, are, are putting on the earth. Uh, regardless, oftentimes I'll talk to them and I'll say, I, I actually think I resonate with you with some of this stuff. I'll say, I, I feel like animals need to be treated well. And 
you know, I'm a hunter and, and, and a lot of people would, would look at me and think, well, you don't care about animals. And I'm like, actually, I, I probably care about them a lot more than you do. Yeah. I, I don't relish. I don't have like some bloodlust to try to murder <laughs> animals. Um, I, I, I respect the earth and I, I believe that there's a natural cycle to the way things are. And the, 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 I'm seeing that with you. Oftentimes farmers can be seen as like cold that, you know, they're, they're going out to, to take care of the animal that's injured or, but in reality it's, there's a, there's a, there's a heart there for, for those animals. And it seems like even you back in the nineties were seeing these animals under undue stress or unneeded stress and thinking, Hey, there's gotta be a better way. Yeah, let, uh, so I spent a yes, which, uh, which, uh, I agree with what you said, and, and I spent a lot of time thinking about it because of what I do for a living, and I'd like to take you another, another level down on that, drilling down on that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, I, I you know, I, I frequently have people tell me that, uh, oh, we really like what you do for a living and the way you run your farm. Uh, the way you care for the animals, where you care for the land, what you do for the community, da 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 da. But I don't understand. I just gotta say, I don't understand how you can see a baby calf born and care for it for two years and then kill it and eat it. I just, I just don't see how you can do that. Mm-hmm. And when I first started hearing that, <clears throat> it, it, it disturbed me a little bit because um, you know these are good people. Telling me that. Yeah. And I'm a good person. And we just got this hell of a disconnect on that. Yeah. And I thought about it enough that I figured out why that happens. <clears throat> and here it is. So I'm 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 a very simple person compared to most of these sophisticated consumers that would tell me that. In most areas, but when it comes to animal relationships, I am a far more complex person than they are Mm -hmm. because probably the only animal relationship they ever had was with their companion animal. And I get it. I got a companion animal. His name is Judge and he's a dog and a bulldog. I wouldn't kill him and eat him for anything. And if he died... If he dies, I'll mourn him. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but that's the only relationship they've ever had. I, on the other hand, have a relationship with my livestock. I have a relationship with my companion animal. I got a relationship with my working animals like stock dogs and guardian dogs and horses. I got a relationship with wildlife. Mm-hmm. I got a relationship with the microbes in the soil. I got a relationship with the bees. So in the same way that that you've got a relationship with your spouse and with your parents and with your children and with your friends and with your aunt, that's nuanced. And my relationship with animals is nuanced. But those people who are telling me, I don't see how you can do that, really just have a a very simple relationship with with the animal kingdom. So that's the reason that disconnect exists. And I don't don't know there's much we can do to correct it other than just explain it to people. Yeah, I think that breakdown alone is helpful. It's basically saying, hey, you don't understand because you don't, you've never had to build a framework for this because you have the luxury of never having to slaughter the animal because you probably just grew up going to a grocery store and it was already wrapped in cellophane. You never saw it. And that's one thing for us where it's like, if you're going to be a consumer, 
And if you're going to not produce 100% of your food on your own property, which means you have to buy from the external food system, then you have to understand the food system. Mm. And understanding the food system means you talk to the actual food producers. It doesn't mean that you go read labels in a grocery store because that's not the food system. That's food marketing. doesn't mean that you have to even source your food from the big box grocery store because there you can buy direct from farmer. You can do all kinds of things. It's 2023. Like we have access in a number of ways. I like the way he said that because and that's really the delta in understanding that we're trying to fill the void, if you yeah. will, that disconnect that is there is something that oftentimes takes time and exposure and learning and information. And that's where, you know, our education comes in. That's why we bring farmers onto our podcast, people that have been there, that have done that, that this is their normal. And there are a number of ways I feel like to experience some of the I don't know, life cycle, the, the, the food um, industry in, in, in better ways, but man, getting close to a farmer is absolutely the best way. Being on a farm, well, that's not true. Maybe not the best way. Maybe being a farmer is the best way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for, for those of us that, that aren't farmers, uh, getting close to one probably probably is. Yeah, I actually want to talk about this because there was a time in history where we were, everyone was probably producing a little bit of their own food. And you talked about this shift after World War II. Tell us and I kind of understand the history, but like, I want your perspective on what happened in the agricultural industry. What was that shift taking place post-war and why did it take place? That's a, that's a great question and I want to answer it. But I also want to address what, what you said before the question, sure. which is, you know, for, and really that, we were really talking about that post-World War II uh, era. Uh, until now, people have not questioned the food in the grocery store. I mean, the, the my, you know, I'm 68 years old. My wife's just a couple of years younger. Her generation thinks, thought, continues to think, if, if it's in that grocery store, it's okay. Mm. I mean, it wouldn't be in Costco or uh, Walmart or Whole Foods if it weren't okay. I mean, they, I mean that, and that's simply not the case. I mean, that may be okay it may not be okay there's no verification in the fact that it's being sold at that national retailers facilities yeah. and 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 your generation has figured out that you got to look a little deeper than that totally and after you figure that out you find out it's really hard because the USDA labels are just f- legally fraudulent it's legal fraud. We can talk a lot about that. Certainly the verbiage that the retailer puts on or the uh, food manufacturer puts on is is uh, mis- mislead- at, ve- at best misleading. It's probably a lie, but it's at best misleading. <clears throat> and, you know, it, it, you keep going down the list and really you've got – and the verification systems are so so – complicated and there's it's competitive and there's really low hanging fruit. So seeing a, a certification on there doesn't tell you much either. Mm. So the consumer has to muster the bandwidth to to some extent to get to know their farmer. Now they it'd be great if you could visit the farm. Mm-hmm. But if you can't you need to know you could visit it and you need to know there are people that are visiting it and you need to be able to look at the social media and see what it looks like. Yeah. So it's, it's, I, I feel sorry for consumers because you've got to be so careful how you spend your money. Yeah. And 
not only are you, if you spend it wrong, not only are you not getting what you paid for, but you're, you are subsidizing a system that is tricking you for a living, which is problematic. Yeah. So the, let's just talk about the post-World War II change, changes. And those changes were uh, the production was industrialized, the processing was centralized, and the quality of the production was commoditized. Three changes, industrial, commodity, centralized. So I think that the impetus and the technology to, to do that came from the, from the World War II, the, the, the war effort. And I, I can give you a lot of examples, but uh, <clears throat> I think that uh, uh, ammoniated fertilizer was invented, probably, I think, in Germany in the 1880s. You can fact check that, but that's going to be close. Mm. But farmers didn't use it for until after World War II. And the reason is it was just so expensive, farmers couldn't afford to use it. The millions, billions of dollars that was spent for munitions manufacturing for the war effort could be repurposed to make ammoniated fertilizer. So suddenly, 1946, ammoniated fertilizer was really cheap and abundant. Wow. And, you know, capitalists cashed in on that hired people to get out and sell it. And there's some stories I could tell you about that. But people started using ammoniated fertilizer. And from 1946 until about 1995, ammoniated fertilizer was put on every acre of land we have once or twice a year by my father or later by me. So that, and and the, the ammoniated fertilizer is, uh, in the short run, is just it's a miracle worker. I mean, it just... This just makes the the grass beautiful, but the unintended consequences that you can't see is it kills the microbes in the soil and oxidizes the carbon in the soil, the organic matter in the soil, and does some other horrible things. But you don't see that; you just see the the, the benefit. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> in the same way that uh, uh, Ammoniated fertilizer came from the munitions effort. Uh, pesticides started with the uh, tear gas or gas war, you know, the uh, what is it, nerve gas uh, research. You know, uh, uh, insecticide, pesticide, herbicide, fungicide. Side means kill. Mm. And the... Uh, Usage of uh, chemicals to kill things uh, changed the way we farm. My friend Gabe Brown, who lives in uh, Bismarck, North Dakota, uh, talks about his early farming years. He said, every morning I walked up and woke up and went outside and looked for something to kill. <laughs> and he's exactly right. You know, and I, I was the same. I, he, he put it more eloquently than I could, but, I, but he... You know, we looked, I, I, I spent a lot of time on my farm looking for pests, what I deemed to be pests, and took a lot of pride in the fact I knew what to use to kill them. Mm. And I would kill that symptom, but I wouldn't correct the problem. Mm-hmm. Conversely, now what I do is try to make things live. Mm. So. Mm-hmm. 
But the you, uh, you know, and even back in the World War II deal, even things like uh, tanks. You know, there's still a lot of mule farming going on prior to World War II. And when those young men went, you know, drove tanks in the European theater, they didn't want to come home and farm with a mule. They wanted to, to mechanize. <laughs> Never thought about that. Yeah, and I'm not advocating going back to mule farming, but I'm just talking <laughs> about how World War II jump-started right. the, the uh, militaristic approach we've taken to farming for the last two or three generations. Mm, I've never heard it called that militaristic. That's so true, though. Even from the technology, the equipment, the you just said looking for things to kill, you're fighting nature. That's one thing that it's like. That's the biggest piece of regenerative agriculture. Is you're no longer fighting. You're not. Nature is not this thing you have to battle to submit to you. We're the ones that submit, and we work with nature. And it's like for some reason that just doesn't always click. So, uh, so if you if you look at the names of the. Uh, Pesticides, fury, arsenal, karate. Is that real? Is that what they're called? I give you my word. <laughs> this is for, this is actually the first time I thought about that. But uh, fury, huh? Fury, fury, fury is a product that uh, was. I guess they still use it. When I used, I used a lot of it in my life. Wow, there's a great war movie called Fury. We watched that semi recently. Well, it is all. It's coming. about tanks. It's about tanks. <laughs> well, you're connecting yeah, these dots. A, when, we, when we get through here, I'm going to Google, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and you, you'll see Ar- Arsenal. I mean, shit, Arsenal. Come on. It's so good. I've never yeah. heard anyone explain that. Yeah, Did well, that's the first question? time. That's first time I've said it, but I'll use it from now on. I can tell you that. Hey, I like I like that original content. So, so you're making this transition. There's the industrialized, centralized, commoditized. Mm. Um, anything else on any of that before we, you know, talk through some of the transition that you made and the lessons learned along the way? Yeah, yeah, I, will, I do want to do that. So, uh, <clears throat> the industrialized, commoditized, centralized. Let's talk, let's finish that, and then we go on. So, the the industrialization is using technology to embrace the factory, the linear factory model on the production side. That's what that is. Mm-hmm. And we can, talk about, we can talk about linear versus cyclical later. Don't forget. The, uh, the commoditization is what really damaged the quality of the food. Prior to commoditization, that word commodity, right? Mm-hmm. Prior to commoditization... Every farmer, I'm talking about my granddad, great-granddad, and, and other farmers of that era, were incentivized, financially incentivized, to make their product the best it could be so they could get a premium. Mm-hmm. Not, not being altruistic, not being noble. If I had the reputation of being the best hog farmer in the community, the butcher would pay me a premium. Mm. Or the best tomato farmer in the community, the homeowner would pay me a premium or the best uh, grain farmer, rice, whatever, you you would strive, the farmer would strive to put quality into their product so they could get that reputation of having the best so they could get uh, control of premium, command a premium. So commoditization reversed that. With commoditization, we set minimum standards that had to be met. So instead of it being a race to the top, it was a race to the bottom. Hmm. The farmer, it was financially incentivized to raise the cheapest product they could make as long as it met the minimum standard. Hmm. 
So it was a race to the bottom, and I think it had more to do with uh, food being uh, damaged by the uh, agricultural revolution than anything else. And the last one that I want to talk about is uh, centralization. And centralization uh, rendered rural America to be financially irrelevant, economically irrelevant. It just wasn't needed anymore. Mm. So uh, if you look, you, know, you don't have to go very far. You said you're in Cincinnati. I don't know that territory, but I bet you don't have to drive an hour out of Cincinnati. You can find a little agrarian town that's just impoverished. And it's because industrial, commoditized, centralized farming impoverished rural America. It just did. And our little town here is an example of the reversal of that. And we can talk more about that later. So the, the commoditization of farming, a race to the bottom, that just stuck with me. It's this idea of we're being incentivized to make our product cheaper. And the impacts of that. I mean, I, I mean, and, and this is why, you know, we had, we had been coming from, you're talking about your generation trusting what's in the store. And I, and I, I definitely want to circle back around to this. And also, by the way, I wrote down linear versus cyclical because, you know, you told me to, but anyways, the, the race to the bottom, making things cheaper before that was happening, people trust what was in the grocery store because what was not to trust, what was not to trust. And then as, as this, this race that you're talking about was happening, how quickly, I mean, I guess I just don't know, how quickly did quality suffer? I mean, was it immediate? Was it as soon as we started using fertilizer? Was there, was there, like, did the soil, and did, 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 was there a capacity to withstand that? Or was it just like an immediate quality was suffering right off the rip? No, I don't, I don't think it was immediate. I mean, I think that there's some immediate impact, mm. but I think it's cumulative. I think that all these things we're talking about Things just degrade and degrade and degrade till it's reached the point that the, that unintended consequence, which was an unnoticed consequence, right. was noticeable. And I think that's where we are now. I think that your generation is figuring this out, not necessarily because you're so much smarter than previous generations, but because it got bad enough that you could see it. Mm-hmm. Right. And we're impacted by it. I mean, I... Uh, we're in our 30s, almost. Joey is almost in his 30s. I'm in my 30s. And it's like, I don't know anyone who personally hasn't dealt with health issues or their kids aren't dealing with health issues, mm-hmm. all related to really environmental and dietary cho- choices. And the other thing that's fresh, and that's why like it, it's heartbreaking, but it's also encouraging for me to hear and see families shifting and wanting to know this stuff. The commoditization piece for me feels like it laid the groundwork for the technological boom. And then we could say, hey, as long as we have got these like commodity crops that we can do things with, let's genetically modify them. Let's let's form patents on them. Let's start selling seed year after year after year. Because if you keep your seed as a farmer, that's an infringement on our patent. And then let's sell you the chemicals to douse on those fields. See, like it's this sick cycle so i'm i don't know if you have uh thoughts and opinions on on that but to me it's like that paved the way for the gmo movement which you know those have only been around what 30 some years so it's relatively new 
Yeah, we started hearing about GMOs in the 80s. So, yeah, I mean, and, 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 it not, and then the, the uh, how widespread, of course, it's just gotten up, mm-hmm. up and up and up. Um, a lot, a lot, you know, a lot, lot to say about what you said, and uh, I'll, I'll say this. So, uh, my dad used to, to, when he was talking about a good business, he he'd refer, he'd say it's like selling them bullets and bandages. Mm. You sell them the cause and the, and the cause and the cure. And I always thought that was a pretty clever saying. And I noticed that Bayer sells aspirin and Roundup. <laughs> they produce aspirin and Roundup. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, that's you know, they they have pharmaceuticals and they have pesticides. And and of course the pharmaceutical industry and the pesticide industry is is very uh, incestuous and, and interrelated. So, yeah, I think that we're, you know, the same people that are profiting on causing the problems or profiting in curing the symptoms, which is just, is just you know, and, that, and that's part of wealth disparity. That's why we've got such incredibly, uh, incredible wealth disparity in this country. So, so people, people and corporations are so, uh, so much of the wealth. Yeah. Talk to us about some of the turnaround that you've had a hand in with Bluffton specifically and how White Oak has sort of stepped in and almost like re-resurrected this town. Well, I, I, I you know, I, I, I do think we sort of resurrected the town. It has gone in the last 15 years or so. It's gone from a ghost town to a tiny, tiny little destination. Mm-hmm. And and we're you know, we're very proud of that. I told you that uh, uh, industrial agriculture made agrarian economies uh, impoverished, and the I've noticed that the more agrarian the economy was, the more it became impoverished. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Bluffton here uh, is. Uh, uh, Peaked in population in 1900 with uh, 380-something people, according to the census. But it was a trade territory for 5,000 people because you had all those small 40-acre farms around it, and this is where they bought and sold in the commerce. Uh, Fast forward to a few years ago, uh, less than 100 people, mostly poor people, old people, people in couldn't be anywhere else for the most part. And uh, uh, and again, Clay County, Georgia, this county, is one of the poorest counties in the United States, not just in Georgia, in the United States. Wow. And uh, and then the time, at the time, 15, 20 years ago, let's say, let's say 20 years ago, I had uh, two or three minimum wage employees uh, selling about a million dollars worth of live cattle a year Payroll was uh, less $1,000 a week or less. Fast forward to today, we're the largest private employer in the county. We've got three, we've got uh, uh, 100, uh, 180-something employees. And right next door there, they write checks for $100,000 payroll every Friday. Wow. And, you know, the, the 180 employees came, most of them came here to be here. Some local people like me, but most came here to be here. And when you bring passionate people here and they work hard, they need a place to 
eat and drink and sleep and play and shop, and we provided it, all of a sudden, the town was relevant again. Mm -hmm. And that's important to me, because, or interesting to me, because when I decided to farm differently, uh, I was focused on the land and the animals. And I studied, I knew what I was had been doing, didn't like it, studied what my options were, tried things, some worked, some didn't, some worked, some, but it was a studied, studied change or changes on the part of the land and the animals. I never thought I could benefit the town. I mean, it never crossed my mind. The town had been in, I was 40 years old by that time. The town had been in decline all my life. Yeah. I didn't think there was anything I could do about that, so I didn't try. But when we, the changes we made for the land and the animals manifested themselves the way they did, suddenly the, the town improved organically, not, not capital O organic, just O organic. So, and that, that, that's been a, a, a fascinating uh, chapter of my life, seeing how that, how that happened. So you're fourth generation. And presumably up until about, what, 15 years ago, the operation was, like you said, $1,000 a week, payroll. It couldn't have been much bigger than that. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. And, I mean, that's some pretty significant growth. Would you attribute that growth to the conversion to a regenerative organic farm? Or were there other moves that you made? Like, How did you achieve that kind of growth? No, I would say that, that, that broadly it's, Absolutely, because of the, the changes I made, the way we farm. Wow. We, 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 so, yes. So we changed the way we farm. We started, we mostly we ceased to use the technologies that we were misusing that broke the cycles of nature. That was the, that's the short version of how we changed the farm. Mm -hmm. And that changed the way... I had to handle it. Instead of loading up a 50,000-pound truckload and shipping it somewhere, which you can do. I mean, you can, if it's oranges, hogs, soybeans, peas, get 50,000 pounds up and ship it somewhere in big ag or paint. I couldn't do that anymore. I had to, uh, I had to manage the, the processing component, which served to change the centralization that we talked about. And then I had to market it differently because I, I couldn't put all that extra value in my crop mm -hmm. and extract it from the commodity market. We had to we had to form White Oak Pastures brand and put extra value into it that people would pay for. So the changes to the way we farm uh, manifested themselves in many, many, many changes. And all those changes required passionate people to, to come in and, and do things for us and they had to get paid and we were fortunate enough to find enough customers to buy the product so we could pay them so that that monetization came about and it re-enriched rural America, re-enriched Bluffton, Georgia. Mm. Mm. 
you don't know this, but uh, our first hire, so Homegrown was just me and Joey for a long time. Then we hired someone, a man named Nathan Johnson. He actually interned on White Oak Pasture for like six months with you back in 2020, I believe. Lived it with his family in an RV on your property. Um, so I, I just love that like we have that little connection. I think at one point Jenny's puppy like ran down the road and Nathan saved it for her. So there, we've got like a little bit of a connection because you're right. The reason why he was drawn to Bluffton was because of what you guys were doing at White Oak. And so he yeah. was just now getting focused on this regenerative ag movement. And so he spent six months over there and... Uh, I just think that's so cool. I love that we have that little bit of connection. Um, well, I, I, I'll do too. Thank you for telling me that, and uh, and then tell him I, I send my regards. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm horrible with names, but I bet <laughs> if I saw him, I'd know him. You would. He's very tall. He's a very tall man, so I'm sure if you saw him in person, you'd recognize him right yeah. away. Um, this, it's my understanding you are one of the only, if not the only, on-farm USDA-inspected processing plant. Is that accurate? Uh, no, it used to be. Oh, uh, it used to be. Okay. Yeah, it used to be. When I built my red meat plant, uh, there was only one other one in the country, on-farm okay. red meat plant in the country, and it was in California. Oh, cool. But since then, there have been a number of them. There's still not many, but there have been a number of them. And, and I hope we can see a lot more. That's what... Uh, yeah. So I was going to ask you, um, talk to us about why you decided to build it on-farm. What are some of the animal wealth factor wellness uh benefits that come from processing your animals in a usda inspected place on your actual property well the the short answer about why i built it on my on, on the farm is that's where i own property <laughs> so, yeah <laughs> it, uh, but 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 the answer to your question is there are many benefits and uh one would be on the animal welfare side you know the my, my animals don't uh, aren't don't have to deal with the hauling that typically when it's you got to go great distances to get to the pro big mega processing plant. Mm -hmm. uh, but probably the main benefit, is, and it allowed me to hire people here mm -hmm. to work to benefit my rural village mm -hmm. as opposed to somewhere else. Mm -hmm. uh, so that, that actually may be the number one reason, but a, a very important reason is uh, the uh, what USDA calls the waste stream, but what I call the nutrient stream. So we have a, a red meat slaughter plant and a poultry slaughter plant. And between the two, uh, and we operate both of them five days a week. Wow. And when they're operating... Uh, they generate nine tons per day of what USDA calls packing plant waste, mm. which again, we call a nutrient stream. So <clears throat> the nine tons of packing plant waste are composted here on the farm. We've got a, a very talented young woman that does a fantastic job running our, that's what she does. She runs a composting operation. Wow. And uh, makes really... Uh, good compost, and we spread it back on our farm. So that's, uh, you can't do that with a mega plant. And so this is scrap, meat scraps, bones, things like this? Yeah, so eviscerate, gut fill, okay. uh, uh, heads, mm -hmm. feathers, 
the bones that don't make uh, good soup bone. They don't have another value. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, it used to include a lot of organs. We have uh, one one great thing and fat. One great thing that's happened uh, to us is uh, the the market for organs through uh, carnivore and, and other kinds of diets is the. the th- we we used to throw away a lot of hearts and livers, yeah. and now we run out of hearts and livers yeah. and spleen and pancreas and all those testicles and all those things that, that there's great demand for it. Yeah, and the uh, and the ones that there is not demand for human consumption, like esophaguses and penises and tracheas and mm-hmm. noses and tails and ears. We dehydrate for pet treats. Oh, interesting. And similarly, uh, fat. Fat is a real problem. Uh, fat does not compost well. Mm. So when we had the fat that we generated and there was no market for it, uh, mm. we uh, I bought a machine to make biodiesel, and it was great in theory, but hell to operate. <laughs> and, the, and the biodiesel wasn't very good. You know, we had, it, 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 an expensive bad idea, but uh, but it's okay. Also, all's well that ends well. The market for animal fat from animals that are raised pastured properly has gone just through the roof. And today we sell all our fat for human consumption. Well, we we make candles and soap and stuff, but most of it goes. We got a product called. We're we're a pretty irreverent group here, but we got a product called Praise the Lord. And we got one called Tallow Be Thy Name, <laughs> and and it's uh it's incredible uh, demand for it. I like your marketing team. Whoever came up with those names, I'm a big fan. Praise yeah. the Lord! It almost sounds Lord. like it's being said Praise in a, the Lord. I mean, like, southern, yeah, in a southern accent. accent yeah. yeah, this is this this is, I am broadcasting from the heart of the Bible Belt here. Now the, <laughs> the Harrisons are not very churchy. I can tell you that. We'll. A little irreverent, a little profane, a little some other things, but uh, it's, it is the Bible Belt. <laughs> yeah, we uh, that's one switch we've made in our home because uh, just everyone wants to source everything from plants and everything wants to be vegan. And then in the same vein, they call all this vegan stuff sustainable and better for the world. I'm like, no, what about all the pounds of fat from the processing plants that could be used to like, what do you think we use to make soap before we had these like highly refined fat oils or um, plant oils? Like we used the lard from the cow that we slaughtered. And sometimes, so we make our own, um, lard soap and people would be like isn't it greasy like isn't it and i'm like all soap has fat people <laughs> all soap is just yeah. so pontified fat it's just you can use plant fat like coconut oil or you can use animal fat so i love that you guys are turning your tallow and your lard into everyday products that probably represent what we used to have done in our own homes mm-hmm. maybe a hundred years ago so i love that that shift it's I, and i also love that like I always assumed you couldn't compost meat or like meat product, but I guess there's a way to do it where it breaks down and then it's nutrient dense and you can li- apply it back to your fields. That's really interesting. To I me. mean, it's organic matter, right? So it's gonna it's gonna break down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I so so composting is uh, is the chemical uh, reaction of nitrogen and carbon. And as well as the microbial breakdown. You got mm-hmm. all those things going on in there at one time. 
And meat is protein, and protein is, is high in nitrogen, right? Mm-hmm. Your protein is like fat with a nitrogen molecule, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen in the fat, but it's got a nitrogen molecule. And I'm, I'm, I'm not that I know much about biochemistry. I do not, but meat has nitrogen. Mm-hmm. Uh, fat doesn't compost well because it doesn't have nitrogen. Mm-hmm. So we take the uh, meat material. And that includes bones and whatnot, which is a great source of minerals, uh, phosphorus and calcium and magnesium. And we blend it, mix it with a a carbon source, which in our case would be uh, bark, tree bark, uh, peanut shells, those kind of whatever carbons available. And, and there are rules that our people go by, and I don't know what they are, but it's got to be uh, uh, raised up to 150 degrees or something for so many days, so many times. And our people know how to do that, and they keep a log, and they measure the temperature. They've got a big old thermometer that goes way down in. And when they get through, it's just really good fertilizer, mm-hmm. not fertilizer like ammoniated chemical fertilizer, but mm. microbe feed. Mm. You know, mm. When I say fertilizer, read micro, microbe feed. Mm-hmm. Feeding the microbes. What's the time frame? So you've you, the nine, nine tons, right? Or is, it, was that, is that what you said? Mm-hmm. Nine tons a day. I mean, five days a week. Five days a week. So that's, I mean, we're talking about 40, uh-huh. 45 tons a week of material that you're going to compost. Is that how, ha- I mean, ha- you said it has to be raised up to 150 degrees multiple times from the day that it comes out of, out of the plant. When is it being, sp- how long until it gets spread on the field? So it, uh, it would be uh, legal and proper to spread it on the field in probably six weeks. Now, <clears throat> we hold ours over in stockpiles for a year. Mm. Oh, wow. And we do that because. This is microbiology, and I don't know anything about it. I'm just I'm, so, someone who I trust told me. <laughs> Sounds like that, you know a lot. Yeah, that uh, uh, when compost is freshly made, it's highly bacterial, and that's fine. You know, back, it's just favorable, favorable, helpful bacteria that, that that helps you. But if you let it sit a year, it becomes more fungal. Mm. And the more fungal it is, the better it is for your for using for fertility. And because I'm in no rush, we let our sit a year. Mm-hmm. Now I want to address that volume where you, uh, you you got your numbers right, but I I failed to tell you. It's nine tons a day, so that's forty five tons a week. But keep in mind, this is guts mm-hmm. and feathers and bones, and I don't know what percent moisture it is. But it's high. Oh, uh, so it dries out significantly. Yeah. So, yeah. so the actual material, the actual yeah. nitrogenous material that we're composting, it, it, you know, it may be uh, fifteen or twenty percent of that total. I don't, I don't, I don't really know. But it, that it totally be, makes sense. Yeah. Totally I mean, like here, you, you know, you may weigh. Don't talk about me. I may weigh well over two hundred pounds, but uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's a lot of water in there. <laughs> It's not that I may weigh over 200 pounds. I weigh a hell of a lot over 200 pounds. 
<laughs> but it's mostly wine and coffee, right? It's mostly wine. <laughs> it is. Well, I don't know. There's a lot of there's a lot of beef and pork and lamb in there. <laughs> Did you ever think you'd be on a podcast talking about your fertilizer mechanism? Do you ever just wake up and be like, I didn't think it would get this way? Like, what are your what's your thought process now? First of all, I was over sixty years old before I ever heard of a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't wasn't your first podcast episode Joe Rogan? Well, that was certainly the biggest. Sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, yeah, you know, that's a big one. Yeah. yeah but uh, I don't know when the first one was, but uh, but no, I, uh, <clears throat> you know, we <clears throat> when I decided twenty five years ago when I decided to change the way I farm, I did it for very personal reasons about what I like and didn't like. Yeah. You know, I was not financially motivated because I was. I was doing pretty good. I was not a wealthy person, but I was living very comfortably doing what I was doing. It was just what I liked and didn't like and what I chose to do, and I was financially in a position I could do do that. I could make that change if I wanted to, and I wanted to, so I did. Yeah. Uh, you know, I... <clears throat> now, the effect it's had is the, the town has come back, mm -hmm. but I didn't do it for that. I didn't know it would do it. You know, we, we're we were offer, we are currently offering a lot of eco services. You know, we're carbon negative operation. We're, I think we're helping mitigate climate change. I know we're improving the quality of the water that goes to the Gulf of Mexico, but I didn't do it for that because I didn't know it was going to do that. Mm -hmm. I damn sure didn't go out. A forty-year-old Will Harris did not walk outside in the nineties and say. I believe the climate's changing. And I think I can mitigate that by changing the way I farm. Yeah. And nothing, you know, these are just pleasant, positive, unintended consequences that occurred when I started, coincidentally started doing the right things. Mm -hmm. In the same way that when my dad started doing the wrong things, it had unintended consequences. They were un unintended, unknown, and unpleasant. Mm -hmm. But in both cases, there's no good guy, no bad guy. You know, it, it's not like that. Hmm. There's information. We take it as it comes to us. And there's probably things that, that, you, that we are doing that we will look back on and be like, man, we wish we could have done that a little bit differently. Oh, yeah. I think, that's, I think that's everyone. So Especially raising kids, parenting. Gosh, talk about unintended consequences. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Negative or positive. They're there. Yeah. So the, uh, you know, the, the 800-pound gorilla in the room is how did we get here? You know, we... The fact is, and, and you can find people who will argue with you, and I welcome the argument, but the fact is we have a very damaging food production system. Damaging ecologically, damaging in terms of economy, damaging in terms of probably health, damaging in terms of being reductive, damaging in terms of how many species have gone uh, extinct, you know, on and on. We just go on and on. And how the hell did that happen? How did that, how did that occur? And the answer is <clears throat> we humans are the first species to become good enough at technology to break the cycles of nature. Mm. No other species has ever done that. And our species has not done it until mostly since World War II. 
Mm-hmm. But through the use of technology, we've broken the cycles of nature. We can talk about the cycles of nature, and that's, that's, that's a pretty good talk. Mm-hmm. We've broken them, and, it, and, it, and it, it, it's, it's, it's damaging. It's bad. There's, there's no good came from it, uh, except, except we, ate, we really ate cheap food for 80 years. I guess we still are. Is now a good time to jump into this linear versus cyclical? Can be. Let's so, let's, let's, let's 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 get in there. All right, let's skin it back. <laughs> so, so uh, and then this this kind of gets on uh, technology gone bad. I want to be clear. I am not anti-technology. I'm talking to you on a computer. I, you know, I, a, you know, I got an iPhone. We got drones. We got. <laughs> Yeah, there's a, I, you can't see it, but I, we got 80-something cameras, and I, I can see all over this farm right here. Wow. On this, on this big screen right there. That's cool. We, we, you know, so, we spent a fortune on software for inventory management and accounting and all. We're, I am not anti-technology. Mm-hmm. But I recognize that the damage that's occurred in the food production system is because of misused technology. Mm-hmm. So, how did that happen? And what happened is, uh, well, first of all, let's let's talk about, so a complicated system versus a complex system. A A complicated system is like this computer we're talking on, or a factory is the kind of the ultimate complicated system. And what that means is there's a lot going on to make it work. Like going on to make this this camera deal work here. Like going on to make that uh, factory that makes sheets or shirts or cars work. And if one component fails, it it don't work. It don't work no more. It's it's very linear. If this causes this, causes this, causes this. A complex system is like your body or this farm. It's a living system. It's complex. And what that means is there's a lot of things going on to make it work. But if one component fails, things kind of morph and it continues to operate mm. after a fashion. Mm-hmm. So uh, reductive science, which is what you do in a laboratory, is highly efficacious in a co- complicated system. You can do this and this and this, but not this, and get an outcome. And this and this, and not you know, you can you can manipulate and and, and formulate the outcome. <clears throat> Reductive science does not work so well in a complex system, a living system, because of that morphing. So you wind up with unintended consequences that are unnoticed. So when my dad and later me applied that complicated reductive science factory model to this living system that's white oak pastures, it had unintended consequences, Mm. and they were bad. Uh, But but, but a complicated system is very linear versus cyclical. Living systems are cyclical. Complex systems are cyclical. Complicated complex systems are cyclical. Complicated systems are linear. A linear system 
like a factory, lends itself to being scaled up bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, and, and, and with that scaling up, it becomes very efficient. Mm -hmm. And sadly, for the last 80 or so years, the only metric that's mattered has been efficiency, mm -hmm. scale. Cheaper, 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 cheaper. We didn't, we didn't measure the other things. They, 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 they were irrelevant. The financials were driven by that scaling up efficiency. So, uh, you know, and, and in a complicated system, com complex system, it doesn't get bigger and bigger and bigger. The healthier you are, the bigger, it's not the bigger you get. I mean, you know, you don't have a, a super healthy guy weighs 800 pounds. You know, it's, you, know you, but, it, but the, the super healthy guy, it works better. Mm -hmm. So we, uh, the, the misapplication of technology to complex systems using reductive science, replacing experiential wisdom with reductive science in that complex living system was just wound up being destructive. Mm -hmm. That was a lot, but... No, that's... So, technology. We've missed... We've missed... Kind of applied it in a number of ways. Is there a basic way that we can understand? Like, where's the line for technology? When are we crossing the line? You've got drones, cameras, you know... I mean, are we going to start implementing robots? Like, where's the line? Where's the line with uh, with technology? And that is a great question, and I've thought about it, and I don't I don't know what to tell you. I do know that uh, there's a uh, it doesn't in in a living system. It you can't you can't go as far with technology in a living system because of the reasons I said. You know, look at look at the medical profession. Y'all mentioned this a little bit earlier, but you know uh, the ills of western medicine come from using that reductive science mm. to the living system that is your body you know how many uh pharmaceuticals have been recalled because they had unintended consequences now it's just a lot you know the uh, there are a lot of those pesticides that we use on this living system that's my farm that have been recalled yeah for the same reason mm -hmm. it sounds to me like the way you've identified the line is by first starting with understanding this complex system of the living entity that you're taking care of. And anything from a technological point of view that is supporting that natural complex system is potentially okay. Appropriate. And anytime there's something that's going to interfere with that or replace a portion of it or try to bypass if we're trying to cut corners, right? That's when we're. That's when we start to encounter those un kind of intended or accidental consequences. An example would be natural fertilization can happen, or we can we can cut a corner, and we can bring these fertilizers in to make our grass grow twice as fast, mm -hmm. or we can pack cattle together in these facilities and use this amazing, you know. Um, shot that'll keep them from getting sick Antibiotic? nobody ever asked me that question before about where you draw the line it's a great question but i'm no, nobody's ever asked me before and and I, I don't know the answer but i'm gonna i'm gonna i'll tell you what i think is uh i think that number one it's got to be tempered the the reductive science is creating the technology mm -hmm. 
It's got to be tempered with experiential wisdom. Yeah. I think that number two, and this is more important, I think you've got to measure more than one result. If, you, if the only result you're measuring is efficiency, it's just, just going to get off the tracks. Totally. And uh, so I, I think that that's, that's the best I can do to answer it. And, and what we've gone wrong is we just measured that one. We, we didn't temper it. We didn't temper the use of technology with experiential wisdom. We just did it. Mm-hmm. And we didn't measure. We did not manage holistically. Mm-hmm. We talk a lot about holistic management. Uh, the, uh, one of the, uh, I guess, essential elements of reductive science is uh, everybody is a specialist. I mean, you know, you know all there is to know about this very narrow uh, part of the spectrum, and you don't, and because you got to know, you got to be the expert and know so much about that, you don't know much about anything else. Right. I tell them it's like watching a, a ball game through a baseball game through a slat in the fence. <laughs> you know, if the third base, you might be uh, the third base coach right behind the third baseman. If he don't know what's going on on first and second and third and home plate and, and the pitch, and he, it's not much of a, a coach. But when we go to college, again, I, I graduated from the University of Georgia College of Agriculture, and I learned animal health from a veterinarian who knew nothing about forages. Mm. But my forage guy knew all about forages, but very little about soil fertility. And on and on and on throughout these experts and and who knew so much, you know, more and more about less and less. And when you're managing a living system, it's holistic. You got to know something about the whole system. I like that. You got to know a little bit about everything versus a lot about one thing. That's yeah. And that's how I feel about healthcare right you go see your eye doctor and then you see your heart doctor and your <laughs> and they're all, all treating different symptoms right and it no one's yeah. talking to each other i mean it's so frustrating so it, there's so much um specialization is causing some like undue focus on elements that you were talking about the holistic view yeah and then mm. we're looking at one metric yeah. to determine success <clears throat> maybe your one metric isn't the same as my metric yeah. so that's the thing The other question we had is like for farmers now or ranchers, whoever, food producers, a lot of them, because they've grown up in this systemic model that has answers to A plus B equals C, like, do you ever get pushback? Like, well, that's great, Will, but I can't replicate that where I am. What do you, how, maybe they can't. Like, is it, is it based on climate? Are there specific things that they need to look into? How do you address the conversation of, I want to replicate what you're doing, but I don't know how? Well, I think there's a lot of that. And uh, the two things that prevent people from embracing what we've embraced is knowledge and capital. And I'm going to say, and, and Probably more important. Well, it falls under capital, but the, the profitability, the market, being able to 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 uh, to cash flow what what you're doing. Yeah. And that, that's and uh, and I think that uh, it's, it's. I'm telling you, it's very wrong to say, well, the farmers just need to change. That's that's unfair. 
Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we're three or maybe four generations into farming industrially now. Uh, the farmers who are farming industrial now are good people mm-hmm. doing what they think is the right thing to do. Uh, they're so heavily financially invested in in the way they farm, got millions of dollars of equipment, and mm-hmm. they probably own have ownership in the pipeline. Your cotton farmers own part of the cotton gin, own part of the cotton warehouse. Grain farmers own part of the grain elevator, own part of the feed mill. Just super heavily invested financially and super heavily invested emotionally. I mean, don't mm-hmm. don't tell me the way my daddy did it was wrong. Mm-hmm. I, I get it. Uh, so <clears throat> to say that farmers just need to change is so unfair and so much not going to happen. Uh and the change, if it comes, will not come from big ag because they're making too much money on this current industrialized system. It won't come from big food because they're making too much money on the present commodity system. Uh, it won't come from government because, make no mistake, lobbyists write the farm bill mm-hmm. and turn it over to aides who have their senator representative vote on it. So that, that's all about the money. And I can go on and on about who won't fix it. And there's only one group who could fix it, and that's consumers. Mm -hmm. It won't come from anywhere else. You know, I tell my children and management staff here all all the time, you know, I, I really don't know whether we are a niche producer raising a small amount of product for sophisticated consumers that get it, or whether we are early innovators that are uh, ahead of the game in changing the way we produce food in this country. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know which one I am. I think we'd be all right either way, but I don't, I don't know which one I am. I hope, I hope we're the early innovators helping to change, yeah. mm-hmm. but I don't get to decide that. Consumers make that call. Mm. And hard for them. You know, consumers, including myself, are hopelessly addicted to obscenely cheap food. Mm. Yeah. And I, it's hard to, hard, I'm going to say that most consumers won't change unless they feel pain. Yeah. You know, just nothing brings about change like pain. I hate to see it happen like that, but it's not new. That's the way it's been you know, since the beginning. Yeah, that's our story. I mean, we changed our food when we had a health crisis with one of our kids that we didn't know how it was going to turn out. Turns out she's okay. But like that wake up call after living two decades on highly processed foods is exactly why we changed. And then it's among other things. Yeah. But but foods being one of those changes that we could implement in our life. And 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 I agree. Consumers are a major part here. A lot of farms were moving their food to these this this central centralization, commoditization, industrialization was also driven by the fact that you know we were just coming out of a war. Where you know that we've got you know that that was pretty soon re, you know, recently after the Great Depression was like in what the 30s something mm-hmm. like this, mm-hmm. and that you know this idea of let's save money 
let's 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 spend money on things that are more experiential and let's commoditize food let's 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 eliminate hunger and world hunger and world peace like all this stuff was 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 a huge good intentions good intentions there was good intentions and there was um unintended consequences yeah and um so while we're on this topic of, of the consumer uh, we, we speak to a lot of consumers. First and foremost, supply and demand, I think, is something that we definitely talk about. Now, if we want to make, if we want these changes as a group, as a community, it's it's up to consumers. It's, it's where we put our dollars. That's our vote, right? Mm-hmm. That's our vote. This there, there's some labels out there that are that are communicating different things to consumers, and as consumers are placing their vote, we want them to be the best educated they possibly can be. And I know this is, <laughs> even just seeing you shake your head, possibly <laughs> yeah. a, 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 a touchy subject. But let's start it off like this. Well, what, is, what does the, the term organic from a grocery store perspective mean to you? <clears throat> so uh, when I hear organic, what I think about, and I think most people, is USDA certified organic. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a program by the USDA. And I think it, I, I, I wasn't in that business back then. I guess it probably came out in the 60s or 70s. You can fact check that. I don't know. It's been around for a while. And I, I suspect that when it first came out, it was a pretty good vegetable standard. Mm. Uh, and basically what I think it probably meant back then is no chemical fertilizers, no pesticides, there weren't GMOs back then, but today would include no GMOs. And but sadly, and, but and it's I'll say this: it's never been a good animal standard. By the time they adapted it to livestock, mm-hmm. I don't believe there was a stockman in the room when they mm. wrote it up. Mm. And sadly, the I think that the uh, the vegetable side of it. The, the row crop side now, because it includes grain and, and other things, uh, has been watered down and beat up to the point that I think it's meaningless. Mm. Now, I'd say that, I would say that 90-something percent, I don't know the number, 90-something percent of these certified organic growers in this country are wonderful people by, by the number of operations. But I'd say that 90-something percent of the organic product in this country that's sold is industrial organic and may not be from wonderful people. Uh, I would say that some of the worst animal welfare I've ever witnessed was a certified organic dairy farm Mm. that I thought was horrible. Some of the worst land abuse I've ever seen was a certified organic vegetable farm. Wow. So when it was just cultiv- death by cultivation. So, uh, I li- and since then, that was the first label that I know of. I think probably the first one there was. Since then, there have been just a plethora of labels. In fact, it's an industry. Mm-hmm. The, the, the verification business is a industry. And there's some, there's some pretty good ones out there. But there's a lot of low-hanging fruit out there. And as a farmer, I can't keep up with them. Consumers, damn sure can't. So I think that labeling certifications are a tool for the greenwashers. And greenwashing is a a terrible thing. But 
Because the consumer goes in and, and hell, everything's certified. Mm -hmm. So they just say, I say, hey, all certified, I'll take this one. Mm -hmm. And that it's, it becomes a greenwashing tool. That it gets back to our early conversation. You got you got to know something about your farmer. Mm -hmm. Sadly, that's the only way you can not get tricked. If we're shopping the grocery store, it is it is extremely challenging, and this is definitely a topic we've brought up. And I love your perspective because, and I'd like to dig in a little bit more on the um, organic meaning for livestock. And where you see the major holes and gaps in that industry for that particular certification? You okay? The, and the short answer is you can have a certified organic CAFO confinement animal feeding operation, yeah, yeah. where the animals are not able to express instinctive behavior. They're not out on adequate land for them to roam and peck and wallow. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, I. I, I I, I was certified organic for a while, and I dropped it because it, I didn't want to put certified organic on my product and have it sitting there besides industrial certified organic. Mm. I yeah. thought it lo lowered. I thought it lowered my my perception. I love that. That's fascinating because I know people that when they're first getting into the real food movement, there's a level of fear around shopping. I remember I used to feel anxiety at the grocery store. And then you just kind of use that as like your North Star. You're like, I'll just put anything organic in my cart. And again, there's so much nuance in agriculture that you wouldn't necessarily understand unless you had these conversations. <laughs> and we always say uh, there's USDA certified organic but then there's also a ton of other food producers that just choose, like you, not to go through that verification route or that certification route. But that doesn't mean that they're automatically using chemical fertilizers and pesticides. So then it's like, well, how do I know? And so then you got to talk to your you got to talk to your farmer. But like, so there's social media. You could connect with the farm. Right. Mm -hmm. There's there's good websites called like farmmatch.com. You can find a local farm through that. That's where we found our local farm. We try to spend like 30 percent of our weekly budget at that farm to support them. But how else can people decipher? Are there ways that is there anything they can look on a package and see? Is it looking at their website? Is it calling the farmer? Like how can these people bypass these confusing labels and still make educated decisions? You know, that I'm just not the right person to ask because I've never had to do that. I mean, I've, I've never had to hunt a farmer. Mm -hmm. uh, we uh, we ship we, we ship 48 states, but we don't want to. I mean, we, we I'd rather there. If you're in Nevada, I'd rather find somebody in the, help you find somebody in Nevada. That, mm. And and you know, I can't. I'm not going to spend all day looking for organic farmers for people. But I, we do, uh, in fact, we've given our people that do the, uh, the, the answer the phone a, a list of who we know that we trust. Trusted suppliers. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's Greg Gunthorpe in Indiana and Gabe Brown in North Dakota and Spencer Smith in Nevada. And, and, and I know a handful of them, but, you know, I can't, I, 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 I don't, I, I don't, I, that's not what I do. Yeah. yeah, sounds like getting getting to know your farmers probably your number one best option. 
Uh, number two is is being very choosy about the if you if you have to do a hybrid right some mm -hmm. things from the grocery store mm -hmm. maybe looking to try to source your meat directly from the source and um, and and vegetables from the grocery store right um, the uh, um, no this, this is this is outstanding the the last thing I wanted to touch on it's, it's it's going backwards a little bit. We were talking about other farmers doing the, using the process that you use, and basically what you said is, man, you, you can't just tell anybody to change because there's so much more going on underneath the hood than just uh, a farm, and every farm is different. However, are to your knowledge, are there geographical barriers that people could experience that would prevent them from farming the way that you do? Uh. I mean, I've never been to the North Pole. <laughs> I got, I got, I got to believe it's, I got to believe it's not as good a place to raise oranges yeah, as you yeah, might. Yeah. Avocados, probably. <laughs> but the the what you what you're saying is, uh, uh, you know, every ecosystem is different, mm -hmm. and you don't have to go from the equator to the North Pole to experience those differences. You know, mm -hmm. here. In uh, in in the, my part of the coastal plain, the ecosystem is going to be a little different than it is in Louisiana and Virginia, which mm -hmm. are the other two ends of the coastal plain. Right, I'm kind of in the middle of it there. And you know, do you know of an ecosystem anywhere where they're not plants and animals and microbes growing? I don't. I mean, maybe the North Pole. I don't know. I know <laughs> but 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 I would say that. Uh, well, let's, let's let's look at this. Let's talk about indigenous people. Hmm. Uh, where did indigenous people not live? I mean, they may be, they may be a place, but a place where indigenous people did not live may not be a good ecosystem to to produce food. Hmm. But any ecosystem where indigenous people live probably has cycles of nature going on yielding some sort of abundance that's what we're talking about the food production system is the abundance that nature provides when all the cycles of nature are functioning op optimally mm -hmm. <clears throat> i mentioned gabe brown already but he, he's my best friend and he far he does a great job farming in north dakota bismarck north dakota not far from the canadian line i'm in uh, southwest georgia not far from the gulf of mexico incredibly different mm -hmm. ecosystems in terms of precipitation, uh, uh, temperature, soil type, on and on and on. Uh, and, and, and we talk about how similar the fundamentals are. The fundamentals never change. You know, the, the mineral cycle, the microbial cycle, the carbon cycle, the on and on. Those cycles never, the energy cycle, water cycle. But what you can do in your ecosystem is is certainly varied and certainly situational. You know, we we talk about how in so my our soils here are even even in the best of times never nearly as good as those glacial soils in the upper Midwest. Mm. And uh, we get fifty two inches of rain. They get. Fourteen, uh, we get we get uh, uh, it never it almost never freezes here. 
They've got six months of frozen. Mm. But the the production capacity of my land here per acre is about the same as his. Hmm. It's just that we can do a little bit 12 months, and they do a lot in four months. That makes so, sense. So, yeah, that's uh, – so I, I, I think that any – any ecosystem that has functioning cycles of nature is capable of uh, growing food and feeding a populace. Wow. Mm, I love that. I, I, do you want to move on to this legacy question? Because I've been itching to ask That's it. That's where I am, too. Okay, you, you, I'll let you cue it up. So uh, our family, we, I, we have three daughters. Uh, yeah, I think, I think you've, you've got three daughters, so mm-hmm. I'm, in, I'm in the, uh, maybe we'll have to start a support group. We'll, dr- <laughs> we'll drink yellowtail wine and, <laughs> and uh, share our stories. But uh, uh, Flee! Flee now! Flee! <laughs> Flee while you're young! Flee! <laughs> uh, I'm going to stick it out, but you know, I love it. The, uh, legacy is a huge thing for us, and there's things that we, we work on for our family, and we don't have a farm, at least not today. You know, we'd love to own property, and I don't know that we'll have the the scale of operation that White Oak Pastures is. No, we won't. But you know, we 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 we're really interested in a life of more sustainability, more more control for our production, and working with farmers is one of those ways we do that today. And maybe someday in our future, we're gonna have uh, livestock and grow vegetables. It's not today. However, that being said, legacy, both in our businesses and in the stories and our, in our, in our family is super, super important to us. And this leads me to this question around the legacy and the future of White Oak Pastures. What, what does that look like to you? What are your hopes and dreams? <clears throat> well, so first of all, no family business goes on in perpetuity. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, you know, we're 150-something years old, and that's pretty old. I mean, it just, you know, if you have it, I don't know where it is, 600-year-old family businesses. That might be, it might exist somewhere with a special set of circumstances. Uh, so pretty much all of it's going to come to an end. And I think it's a mistake when the matriarch or patriarch tries to manage it from, from the grave, mm. right? You know, this is, this is the way I want y'all to do it from now on. That's a mistake. Um, On the other hand, it's been my experience that if you've got, I'm going to say three or more children, just pick that number, it's a pretty good number, and a pretty good family business, there's a high likelihood somebody will take it on. Eventually it'll come to a stop. For that next generation. And I'm, I'm blessed with that. Uh, so the, the saying in my part of the world is typically with the family business, the first generation makes it, the second generation keeps it, and the third generation pisses it away. Mm-hmm. And that I've seen that happen dozens and dozens of times. Uh, in the case of my family, it didn't work like that. You know, my, If it did, my dad should have peed it away, and he didn't. He built on it. Uh, in, in my case, I've been very fortunate because uh, I'm 68. I got two daughters here on the farm in their 30s. And I'm pretty sure that if the business stays profitable, they'll be here for the rest of their, their career. So that's another 30 years. Well, that's a hell of a boon for me because at 68, most of my peers are dead or looking for uh, an escape strategy 
if they own their own business like I have, they're looking, you know, what am I going to do with this thing? You know, can, do I shut it down or liquidate it or, or, or how, how do we do this? And I'm spared that because my, you know, my two daughters and two in-laws and the rest of the management staff here who are not family members, but they're embedded in management uh, are going to run it for the next uh, 30 years, probably. So that's my story. I don't know how to give advice to anybody else. Uh, I I don't know what to tell you about that. Do you have any dreams? Do you have any... It doesn't even have to be 30 years from now. What about five years from now? Like, what are you looking forward to? Is there Are there new things? You said you might get into dairy. Are there new things you're looking forward to for White Oak? <clears throat> well, I, I got to say, I'm probably the happiest son of a bitch on the planet. Mm-hmm. You know, I love where I am, what I'm doing. Uh, you know, I'm uh, very blessed with that. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't look... Uh, you know that's funny. So we plan generationally. We, we do that. We we uh, we don't pay much attention to the quarterly report or the annual report. Or but but we or we do we do make plans and we make them generationally. Uh, but I uh, you know I think I don't I, I don't have grand visions about. It. I think as long as we continue to do the things that we're doing. Uh, work to make the farm more and more and more resilient. That might be the answer to your question. Uh, maybe these maybe these businesses fail because there's so much focus and measurement on growth and not enough on resilience. Mm. And I uh, that 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 they don't persist. You know, I, I think that I think that efficiency and resilience or like yin and yang you know it's a, you, you sacrifice one for the other mm-hmm. and over the la- we talked about how we've measured nothing but efficiency for the last 75 years or whatever the number is so we wound up with these incredibly efficient businesses that are just not very resilient and resilient is what keeps you what keeps you there you know, the resilience to me is the ability of a system to 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 take a licking but continue to operate. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, resilience means a whole lot more to us than growth or efficiency. That's good. Resilience, I love that. That's huge. Yeah. Will anything you'd love to to share before we we sign off here? Anything that was if you're, you're talking to other farmers homesteaders, f- families that are, that are providing for their, their kids at home. Anything, anything you want to touch on or, or uh, is, that, is that about to do it? Well, I don't think I mentioned this earlier. I may have, but uh, we, we founded a nonprofit last year called CIFAR, uh, Center for Agricultural Resilience. Mm-hmm. It's a 501c3. And uh, we, we teach what we do. Uh, to, to people who want to learn it. So if you've got anybody that's interested, uh, it's not a how to farm. You know, we're not going to show a homestead how to milk a cow. That's not what it's about. It's about how to think. Of, nothing wrong with that. It's just that's not what we do. Uh, it's about how to think about the food production system differently, the way we think about it. And I would urge you and your listeners to look into that. It's uh, Center for Agricultural Resilience. Has a web page and his references to it on our web page, White Oak Pastures. 
couple things I'll tell you about is uh, uh, we were uh, featured in a uh, documentary that uh, was invited to be at the Sundance Film Festival. I think there was a, a thou- over a thousand entries and maybe 30 got accepted. Those numbers may not be right, but uh, the one we were in was, and it's called Food and Country. And it's not about White Oak Pastures, but we're featured, and it's about us and a bunch of other good farmers. And that might be something I'd direct you to. And the last thing is uh, <clears throat> uh, we sold the book rights to White Oak Pastures about a year and a half ago. You asked me if I ever thought I'd be on a uh, a, food, a podcast. Yeah. You know, I've never read many books. I had no idea there'd be one written about us, but but there was. It was uh, uh, Random House Viking Penguin bought the book rights, and they had a brilliant young woman write the book, and it'll be out in September. Wow. And it's called A Bold Return to Giving a Damn. So mm, I love that. So I mentioned those, uh, the CFAR, the... Uh, Food and country and bold return to giving a damn is is uh, opportunities for your listeners to gain insight, more insight if they're interested in this kind of food production. Yeah. Well, Will, I hope that you look around your town, your farm, your family, and uh, I hope you soak in the incredible accomplishments that you've made. I know you're a very humble man and you never said and you didn't like start this journey with this end result in mind but what you've created is incredible and your story sharing your philosophy it, it people are drawn to it because it's what our country needs right now so I'm just super grateful that you were on the show today I feel very humbled that you shared as much as you did and um yeah really just grateful for your your voice in this industry I think it's so needed yeah, love it. Super inspiring story. Keep, you know, you, you said you're the happiest man on the planet right now, and it shows. I it feel does. it. See, yeah. even even through the barrier of the screen, the 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 complicated technology, right? <laughs> it's uh, it's it's been a pleasure. It's been enjoyable, and um, yeah, enjoy enjoy that uh, that uh, bottle of wine tonight. Oh yeah. Uh, I will. I will, and I enjoy talking to y'all today. Thank you for for interviewing me. Have a great day. Thank you. And giving today's featured brands one last shout out, Kelowna Supernatural is providing high quality dairy products from small family farms to communities nationwide. Be sure to check out one of their many beyond organic dairy products. I personally love their whole milk and their butter. Learn more at KelownaSupernatural.com. Toops & Co. Organics is the skincare and makeup company that we've chosen for our family. As a mother of three daughters, it's incredibly important that we source truly clean skincare. Be sure to check out their tallow bombs, organic mascara, and more at toopsandco.com and use the code HOMEGROWN for 10% off your order. And with that, the Will Harris of White Oak Pastures has left the virtual chat. Wow. That was great. A lot of, I, I'm going to I, I'm gonna have to go back and listen to that one. So many, so many cool things we talked about. I love how he breaks stuff down into so many different 
It's almost like he's like a school teacher. He's a philosopher. That's why I said it. Like his philosophy around agriculture. The militization, military, I'm just going to butcher that. Whatever. That analogy between mm-hmm. military. <laughs> he's like, I'm going to go Google. It's like this military approach to <laughs> Which farming did. after World War II. The people were driving tanks. They came back and boom. Now yeah. you're spraying fury on your, on your crops. That is like... I want to write a paper on that. So cool. You know, like that's just a really cool viewpoint on society. I don't know. I nerd out about that kind of stuff. Anyways, I mean it. I Like I feel kind of emotional even. Like I just think the impact of a, an example as big as his and one that's as innovative as, as his is just really encouraging to mm. me. And, you know, celebrity farmers, like there's all these people, you know, Joel Salatin, who I love, I, you know, and I put Will Harris in that category because, you know, he's he's been speaking out a lot recently. Mm-hmm. And um, but at the end of the day, like they don't start these businesses to become spokesmen for their way of living. They live this way, farm this way, make mistakes, grow families, like have employees, serve their communities. And then, you know, people like us just get the benefit of hearing their stories. Mm-hmm. So I hope everyone listening really enjoyed that as much as Joey and I enjoyed recording it. Um, Definitely go check out White Oak Pastures. They're on Instagram. Yep, they got a website. Yeah, they got a website. The This book that's coming out mm-hmm. sounds outstanding. A Bold Return to Giving a Damn, I it think sounds is the title. Outstanding. Yeah. And, you know, they've got this. 501c3 this nonprofit that they're working on that is bringing people into this understanding of a new way of agriculture love it looking at your food and, the food um, system yeah love that you can tell he's on this mission to alter the way of thinking for consumers and this mission he's saying is not to go out and just beat down the doors of other farmers and tell them to change I love this because it's so often that we just, you know, yell at farmers. Like, hey, you're the problem. You're doing this. You're doing this. And then we go out and we buy their food. Yeah. And it's something to remember that our, our, in this setting, our dollars are speaking louder than our words. And man, I, I, this, this, this mission that we're on bringing people like Will Harris on to talk about these sorts of things is because we share that mission. And this is why we're working through creating resources that help us understand where to put our money. Because mm-hmm. sometimes, like he talked about, this greenwashing initiative, these different labels, they can be conf- confusing. Mm-hmm. And we might be supporting the very thing that we're trying to work against. And um, man, I, uh, I love that. I love that. Talk, talk to me about talk to me about some of these resources that people can get their hands on to help them join in the fight. <laughs> yeah. So. Um we we're trying to approach it from all angles we're trying to help you educate your kids we're trying to help educate you we're trying to give you practical ways to cook meals that are nourishing and it dawned on me this week as i was um on instagram even the simple thing of like soaking your rice so if you're if you're going to consume like brown rice which um, is the whole rice intact? You should soak it because there's a lot of phytic acid, mm-hmm. and you want to neutralize that. These types of things really intimidated me when I mm-hmm. first got into real food. I was like, "Wait, so I have to soak this, and for how long, and what do I do?" Um, and that's not even like that's rice. Like, talk about cooking a whole chicken. And so the beauty of 
the resources we've created and you know I'll use what's for dinner as the example is like all of those sort of real food um, cooking methods and ideologies are baked into something that just literally tells you what to make for your family what to shop for at the grocery store and then how to prep for maybe tomorrow's dinner Mm. or two dinners from now and so like that's where you you could yeah listen to podcasts or you could go check out a cookbook at the library but it's not going to give you a meal plan Mm -hmm. it's not going to tell you okay i made this one recipe but like now i need to make 42 other meals this week Mm -hmm. or whatever so what we're trying to do is really bridge those gaps between knowledge and doing Mm -hmm. so with your kids they want to be able to learn about real food well let's give them a workbook they can write in generational change color in they can yeah yeah normalizing understanding what our food is where it comes from getting close to our farmers you know when we get to the grocery store if i were even to consider reading some labels you know being somewhat educated and knowing that man marketing is a thing yeah knowing that Mm -hmm. knowing that you know certifications like will was talking about you know you got to be careful yep and um that's that's what we're that's what we're here for hey we've got we've got books we've got Meal plans, like what's for dinner, solving the crisis of what's for dinner. (laughs) We've got what's for breakfast, real food guide for adults. Again, curriculum for your kids, coloring books. I mean, we got all kinds of things. Got more things coming. Mm -hmm. More things coming because this is we're not we're not stopping, Mm -hmm. right? We're we're still hustling. We're out here. We're talking to Will Harris. We're we're writing books. We're, uh, we're, we're, we're working on this thing. So keep an eye out for, for future things that may come your way. And, uh, you can find these current resources on our website, which is homegrown, www.homegrowneducation.org. Nailed it. Nice. You can also find us on Instagram. You can find homegrown on Instagram. It's really just Elizabeth. She's smart on that. So we do that. You're on there sometimes. Homegrown you underscore. You might see me on there, but you know, education. I'm not on there. You don't run the account. Homegrown underscore education. You can find Joey at Joey Hazelmeyer. I do run that account. He does run that account. Uh, <laughs> he puts questionable <laughs> words in his bio sometimes, but we'll ignore it. And then I'm at Liz Hazelmeyer. So yeah, I don't normally say that's a wrap. I'm going to let you say it.